You're listening to the podcast for Asbury United Methodist Church. Join us every Sunday at 9 a.m. for small groups, 10 a.m. for worship, or anytime at asburybosier.org. Before we begin, I do want to take a moment, and uh, there are two prayer concerns uh, that I got early this morning uh, that didn't make it into David's. uh, I didn't have time to touch uh, base with David before the pastoral prayer. One is uh, David and Elizabeth White. David is our finance uh, chair. Uh, He's actually living in Ruston uh, and and videoing in uh, to be our finance chair. Uh, And they are having, Elizabeth is having some health issues uh, related to uh, her pregnancy Uh, And they're dire, so please lift up both of them in your prayers today. Uh, And also, uh, Pastor Tim Barnes, his his mother is 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 dying. Uh, He is currently he's not currently, but he will soon be on a plane to the United Kingdom uh, to go back home to be with his mother in her final days. So hold Tim uh, and Suzanne in your prayers as well. Let's take a moment and let's pray uh, together. Gracious God, on days like this, we are filled with celebrations of baptism and new life and the continued story of your presence. And Father, we also spend some time in lament for those struggling with health, for those who are saying goodbye. Father, may your presence be known. In Jesus' name, amen. So we begin a new series today, Jesus Revealed, and it's on the I Am Statements of the Gospel of John. Uh, And thank you for being here as we begin this journey together. Our scripture lesson today comes from the Gospel of John, the 8th chapter, verse 12. It'll be on the screens, it'll be online, and it's also in your Bible. Let us hear the word of the Lord. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Several years ago, Christy and I had the opportunity to go to the National Gallery uh, in Trafalgar Square in London. Sometimes I live a crazy life. I had the opportunity to present uh, a paper at the University of Manchester on the Christian symbolism of Doctor Who, interestingly enough. And then to make the day stranger, after that, we went to a Cajun-Asian fusion restaurant. So here I am, thousands of miles from home, and I still wind up at a Cajun restaurant in Manchester. Just crazy. It was just such a crazy day. We went to um, the, the, I say museum, the art gallery, uh, really specifically to see a painting by Van Gogh, uh, which is called Sunflowers, one of his sunflower uh, paintings. And it's because uh, Doctor Who uh, has this interesting episode. It's called Vincent and the Doctor. Uh, And you don't have to watch it, but I'll give you a moment to write this down. It's season five, episode 10. It's on HBO Max. I'll say it again so you can write it down. Season five, episode 10. It's on HBO Max. The reason I say that, uh, all joking aside, it is probably the most honest expression of depression that I've ever seen on television. If you're not crying by the end of candy, you just bring a whole Sam's load of Kleenex before watching that episode, my friend. 
If you're not crying by the end of it, you're not human. Season 5, episode 10, HBO Max, Doctor Who. You should see it. But there's this relationship between the Doctor and, and Vincent. So we wanted to go see one of Vincent Van Gogh's. We're doing a thing on Doctor Who anyway. We wanted to see one of the paintings. And it's something interesting. You know, when you see a painting with your own eyes, unmitigated by a screen or in a book, it, it's, it's powerful. You see things like brush strokes and the colors are vibrant. And, and I'm not an art critic nor an art historian. I really wish I was because that would be, sounds fantastic. But one thing I do know is that a picture is never larger than its frame. A picture is never bigger than its frame. The frame of a picture is kind of like a cheat sheet. It helps us understand what the artist wants us to see. Right? In other words, when you go into the National Gallery and you see sunflowers, you don't have to, and it has a frame around it, you don't have to discern whether or not the light switch on the wall is part of the experience, right? That's what the frame does. It's a cheat sheet. It shows us what the artist wants us to see. And that doesn't only apply to artwork. Books have covers and prologues and movies have end credits and video games have places you can't go because the graphics card is not fancy enough. Classes have a syllabus. Denominations have articles of religion. Politics have platforms. And a word about politics, just, just for fun, since all of you nice people are here. The political ad, whatever the political ad is, is an act of framing, right? It's a cheat sheet. It's what the candidate wants you to see and pay attention to. Sometimes it's really helpful. Sometimes it's, it's, it's a, a, a good thing. Like we heard a couple of weeks ago that they might be changing the contract of the tennis center. So several of us showed up and the room was full and they decided not to change the contract after all. So sometimes these, these things really, they mobilize us and they get us moving. But also sometimes these ads, they make your person look like a saint and a hero and they will save us. And then they make the other guy look like the villain and they can't do it. It's a grainy image and they're like, they've spilt mustard on their shirt from their you know, hot dog. Just be in mind that this is a frame. It is what the candidate wants you to see. And the problem is sometimes we repeat these political ads without like doing homework or vetting or context or whatever. And we just kind of, and that's exactly what the campaign wants you to do is repeat these things without thinking about them. Pay attention to the frame. A picture is never bigger then it's framed. Another uh, less contentious uh, example of this is the Haunted Mansion uh, in the Disney par parks. Have you been on the Haunted Mansion? Tis the season, right? Halloween. Um, you enter into the Haunted Mansion and there's two rooms. Like there's this really cool stretching room. There's this other great room. It's really there so your eyes can adjust from the light that is outside to the darkness of the ride, right? Disney thinks of everything. You go into this room, your eyes adjust and then finally you're ready for the ride and you ride a doom buggy right through this house, a doom buggy. But the doom buggy also rotates and shifts because they point you in the direction where they want you to see. They don't want you to look behind to see the strings and the lights and the exit sign. And the. It points you exactly where they want you to see the story, right? It's an act of framing. A picture is never bigger than its frame except when it is. <laughs> and the Gospel of John is. The Gospel of John wants to take the frame and bust it apart and throw it away and want you to experience something that bleeds over the perceived edges 
or boundaries or permissions. The Gospel of John wants you to think about Jesus in a different way. The Gospel of John wants you to think about Scripture in a different way other than the other Gospel. The Gospel of John begins with reckless abandonment. In the, it's, not like, it's not like the Gospel of Mark where it just says Jesus is on the scene or Matthew where it said so-and-so begat so-and-so who begat so-and-so, right? Or the Gospel of Luke that says this beautiful Christmas story. John just busts the frame right open. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. What a claim at the very beginning. When you start reading the Gospel of John, you should say, oh, the rules are not going to apply with this one, are they? Right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In him was life, and it was light to all people. Who was it to? All people. And the life and light was life. The picture's never bigger than its frame until, until it is. Gospel of John reminds us that the frame is not really the important part of a piece of artwork. The important part of the piece of artwork is the light. Because without light, you would not be able to see it. Light bounces off of the picture and bounces to your eye. So the lighting matters. Where a piece of artwork is positioned, either in your home or in a gallery or on the street as a building, that, that matters. The people who are around you as you're watching this piece of artwork matter. My interpretation, your interpretation, cuckoo, cuckoo, all of our interpretations matter. Of course a picture is bigger than its frame. It has to be if we're going to make sense of it. And that's what the Gospel of John begs us to see. The Gospel of John invites us not to do this just with artwork or, or with politics or, or with uh, where we find ourselves and with HOAs and these kind of things. It asks us to do it with everything. To question the frame that has been given to you so that you might see the work of God. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And it's the perfect metaphor for Jesus. Light is the speed limit of the universe. Nothing travels faster than it. If it did, you would be flung out of existence. All things were created through Christ, Scripture says. And therefore, light is perfect because light is the boundary of the universe. Light is timeless because at the speed of light, clocks don't tick. Christ is also timeless. The Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and, and the end... Right? Light is also uh, uh, massless. It does not break down. It does not decay. As we've seen from like the James Webb telescope, we're seeing galaxies at the very beginning of time. The light has been traveling for billions of years. When Jesus says, I am the light of the world, it is almost the perfect metaphor for who Jesus is. The boundary of all that is. Never decaying. Timeless. Revealing truth. Sight, in particular, is our most powerful sense, at least in terms of brain power. More than 50% of our cortex, the outer membrane of the brain, is dedicated to processing vision. I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. We're going to walk through John chapter 9 uh, here this morning. It's a fantastic story. Uh, so I invite you to, to grab the Pew Bible or grab your Bible or grab a Bible app 
or just listen because I know as good Methodists you have John chapter 9 memorized so you can kind of like follow along in your own in your own head that's okay John chapter 9 here we go we're going to walk through this as Jesus walked along he saw a man blind from birth John chapter 9 I see some folks flipping through it thank you y'all are going you're getting some heaven points I appreciate that you're flipping through the Bible that's good John chapter 9 and everyone else has it memorized it's good perfect as Jesus walked along he saw a man blind from birth his disciples asked him rabbi who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind Pay attention as we're walking through John chapter 9. The one question I want you to ask yourself is, who is seeing what? Jesus just said, I am the light of the world. Therefore, John primes the pump. John wants us to pay attention to what people are seeing, or maybe more importantly, who people are seeing. Whom people are seeing? Who? Whom? Mm. Jesus saw... A man, born blind. His disciples asked him, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Who did Jesus see? You can say it, Jeff. Go ahead. A man. Jesus saw a man. What did the disciples see? His sin. Already, John, this story is priming the pump of what's about to happen. When Jesus is out in the world, when Jesus is with God's people, Jesus saw the human being. Jesus saw the person. Jesus saw the one that had been cast out because they were deficient. And the disciples, what did they see? They saw his sin. And it was a hiccup and it was a, bur- it was a burden to them. They had to discern. Where did this man sin? Even before seeing him as a human, they saw his sin. And they wrestled with it and said, where did it come from? Was it his fault? that he's blind or his parents fault that he was blind Jesus says neither (laughs) neither they try to define his sin before entering into a relationship with him Hmm. but Jesus sees the person that's how Jesus operates Jesus sees him do we wrestle with sin of course we do we are messy We are human. We miss the mark. We are far from perfect. Jesus died and rose again so that we would not be defined, however, by our failures and struggles and shortcomings. And yes, there are some who follow Jesus, like the disciples in the story, who want to define everyone according to their shortfalls. So Jesus answered the disciples, neither, neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's work might be revealed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And when he said this, he spat on the ground and he made mud with the saliva and spread the mud on the man's eyes. And he says, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means Sin, a uh, scent, which means sit. I wonder how often this man had someone spit in his face. What might this man be thinking when he hears Jesus spit and pick up mud 
What's about to happen? Is someone going to fling mud on me again because of the sin they think I carry? But Jesus takes something probably often used for harm and redeems it and it brings healing. The blindness was not for sin. It says that the blindness was for God's glory. Keep in mind, this man did not ask to be healed. He did not say, into my heart, into my heart, Lord. Jesus healed anyway. There wasn't time for him to join a covenant group. There wasn't a time for him to be a tither at Asbury, though that would be amazing. Jesus healed anyway. And we still, we still wrestle with this unmerited grace. Would Jesus really heal someone with no, with no uh, uh, presuppositions, with no prerequisites? I mean, shouldn't we, there's a copay or something. The man didn't even ask. Jesus healed, and we still wrestle with, is grace really free? (sighs) Unmerited, simply out of love for the man. That can't be true, can it? But here's the thing. Jesus said, go and wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. Jesus didn't heal just for the sake of healing. He healed so that this man would be sent out to share the gospel. He becomes, in fact, as the story progresses, he becomes much more astute than the disciples are. He understands Jesus' mission even better than they do. It's amazing when sometimes, sometimes there are those who spend a lifetime in the church and, and they, they just don't understand unmerited grace. And then when you have received it, You become an expert at forgiveness. You become an expert at grace. You become an expert at recognizing that people are messy and they should also be loved. What can we teach for the glory of God? Go to the pool called Salome. Go to the pool called Sent because Jesus wants him to be sent out to proclaim the good news. Because he goes back home and people are like, wait a minute, wait, 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 weren't you blind? And he gets to tell his story. Our healings, our failures, our failures rather, our failures which lead to healing, our failures might be the very thing that eventually becomes that which is most proud. Because it has been redeemed. Because we have made it. Because it is something to teach and it is something to share. If I am wrestling for example, if I'm wrestling with, with alcohol, I don't want to talk to someone who has never wrestled with it. I want to talk to the guy who's been at rock bottom, who has changed his life, and who knows the steps and says, there's a power greater than I at work here, where that failure then changes someone else's life. That's the power of grace. You are not only healed of your failures, your failure falls forward into someone else's redemption. So Jesus says, go wash in the pool of, of Siloam. Go wash in being, go wash in being sent. Go wash in being sent. What is it that you can teach that you know really well? Oh, it could be art. It could be football. It could be English, it could also be, I've wrestled, I've been addicted, 
I didn't know how to handle money. I'm terrible at relationships. Even our failures can be teaching moments. That's how grace works, is that it doesn't lead only to your healing, it leads to someone else's healing. Go and bathe in the pool of being sent. There's a song I ran across uh, just this morning, because uh, often when I come into church, I play Spotify, but I just play like Spotify radio. You might know this song. It's called Tightrope. Oh my gosh, it's such a great song. I, even, I texted Tommy. I said, Tommy, you've got to add this to the setup. You've got to add this to the set list coming up in a couple weeks. So act surprised when you hear this eventually. I don't know how long. Tommy, how long can we? I'm kidding. Um, here's, the, here's some of the lyrics. So I try to walk balanced and healthy. I say I'm fine. Wobbles and all. But some things I can't fake. It's a curse I can't break. No, the tightrope's no match for the fall. Teach me to fall in your direction. Teach me to hitch my heart with yours. Give me the mind to know the difference between the cart and the cargo and the horse. Teach me today I still need saving. Show me the measure of your grace. When I can't go on, teach me to climb. When I can't get up, teach me to rise. When I fall, teach me to fly. You danced on the tightrope like nothing. Made all of the walkers look stiff. You forgave the sinner and you condemned the winner. So they took that rope and hung you with it. But on the third day, something happened. You rose up and looked for your friends. You told them you forgave them and that you'd always be with them. And that falling is how you ascend. You said falling is how you ascend. Song called Tightrope. Be surprised when you hear it. The story continues. Gospel of John, chapter 9. The neighbors and those who had seen this man before as a beggar began to ask, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some were saying, it is he. Others were saying, no, but it's someone like him. And he kept saying, no, I am the man. What did Jesus see at the very beginning of this story? He saw the man. Finally, this man is beginning to believe that he can see. He's beginning to believe what Jesus has told him, who he he is. He's beginning to believe that he is healed. The language is beginning to change. And he goes, no, no, I am the man. I am the man that Jesus saw. I am the one who was lifted up. I am the one who has been healed. Sometimes, friends, it takes time to believe in your own healing. I am the man. But, we continue, they kept asking, how were your eyes opened? He said, the man called Jesus made mud, spread it on my eyes, and he said to me, go in Salome and wash. And then I washed, (laughs) and I received my sight. And they said to him, well, where is he? He says, I don't know. Healing is not the end of the journey. Healing is a beginning. Yes, he can see. He's beginning to trust in his own healing. And yet he's still, there's more to learn. There's more room to grow. He's still looking for Jesus. I don't know where he is. So they brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Do you see that change of language? He's not the blind man. He's the man 
who was formerly blind. His identity is changing throughout this entire story. They've brought the, the, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now, it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Uh-oh. Well, it was all fun. It was all good. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Oh, it's the Sabbath. Whoopsies. It was the Sabbath day. The Pharisees began to ask him how he received his sight. And he said to them, he put, put mud on my eyes and then I washed it. Now I see. I can see clearly. Right. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not for God, for he does not observe the Sabbath. What an interesting response. No one in the history of ever has restored someone's sight. This man was blind and now he can see. His life is forever changed. The Pharisees do not shout hallelujah. They do not put their hands in the sky. They do not say, let's do a capital campaign and build a statue here. They say, this can't be possible because Jesus broke the rules. He healed on the Sabbath and that, mm, that's a no-go. Amazing. Rules are important. They help keep our lives ordered. They reveal where I end and you begin. They offer fairness. But when rules get in the way of people's healing or the celebration of a changed life, the rules, like a frame, must be retired. They must be at least investigated and questioned and looked at again. This couldn't have happened. It's the Sabbath, after all. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. What better way to keep the Sabbath holy than to restore someone's life, to bring them back into society, to tell them you have a place. Nah, well, we can't do that on Saturday. Ella, shoes on, right? That's just a joke. It was an amazing game. Like at the beginning, like I threw up on myself a little bit because I was like, really? And then like, thank you defense. Like they, the defense, like, I don't know what they did at halftime. I don't want to know what they did in halftime. Can't do that on Saturday. Can't do that on the Sabbath. That's a no-no. That breaks the rules. Yeah, we know that he's healed. We know that he's been restored, but you didn't do it the way we wanted you to do it. And therefore, that's a problem. We continue. The Jews did not believe <laughs> that he had been blind and had received his sight. Because some people, they think that they are completely beyond redemption. So when they are healed and when they are active and when they are helping people, they, just, they still just can't believe it. Right? Aren't you Johnny from fifth grade? You were a total idiot back then. What do you mean you're CEO of whatever? Right? You just can't, you know, no. I, saw, I played dodgeball with you and you were a schmuck on the playground. Like, how is it that you're a social worker now, right? Some people just, they just could not believe, oh, he must not have really been blind. That's what they're doing. He must not have really had struggles. He must have just been pretending maybe for sympathy or, or for some extra cash. He couldn't have been blind. So what did they do? They go to his parents. They went to his parents and said, is this your son who you say was born blind? It is a favorite phone call to get, is it not? May I speak with the parents of Isabel Rawl? Right? Have you gotten calls like that before? <laughs> yeah. Can I speak with the parents of Matt Rawl? Like, oh my God. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> and then, is this your son? Is this your son who you say 
was born blind? Did you catch that? What suspicion? Is this your son who you say was born blind? How does he now see? And his parents answered, <laughs> parents answered, well, we know that this is our son and we know that he was born blind, but we do not know how it is he now sees, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Yes, that is my son and we are his parents, but I have no idea how that got in his backpack, right? You follow me? Like the parents are scrambling. They're like sweating, you know. Yeah, well, we know this is our son, and yeah, we know that he was blind, but I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea what happened and why he had that at school. So they say, ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. Thanks, Mom. <laughs> His parents said this because they were afraid. They were afraid of the leaders of the Jewish community for they had already agreed that anyone who confessed Jesus to be the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. At first, when reading the story, and for years, I always made fun of the parents and I always threw them under the bus. And then I became a parent. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. So at first, when you look at the story, you're like, how dare his parents? The parents are totally throwing him under the bus. He's of age, ask him. Like, I don't know. But what kind of system would make parents fearful of loving their kid? I'll say that again. What kind of system, religious system, would make a parent fearful to love their kid? How dare that system cause the parents to be fearful to say we love our son? out of fear of being kicked out. So for a second time, they called the man who had been born blind and they said to him, give glory to God, we know this man is a sinner. Again, not give glory to God, you can see. Give glory to God, we know that this man is a sinner. He answered, I don't know whether he is a sinner, but one thing I do know is that I was blind and now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I've told you already and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to be his disciple? Ooh, you want to burn the biscuits of a Pharisee. That's how you do it. You're asking a lot of questions about Jesus. Do, do you want to follow Jesus too? It's like when you're sitting down and, and just you're kind of in the periphery of someone watching the great British baking show. But you don't, you don't watch it. You know, I don't, I don't bake. Oh, I don't know. But, but, but you're in the vicinity of someone watching the great British baking show and you start to say like, what are they making? Oh, it's, it's cookie week. Okay. I mean, no, I'm not interested. I'm just, you know, you know. Oh, wait, where are they from? They're a teacher from India? Oh my God. I mean, I mean I'm going to go play football. I'll be right back. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't, I don't want to, I don't watch... And the man who was born blind said, well, you're really, you're asking a lot of questions about, do you want to be his disciple too? Oh, but that chap there hide. Oh my gosh, because it says this, and I've lost my place because I got excited about the British baking show. I mean, I, I don't want, I mean, it's, if, you know, it's, I don't, I don't even know it's on its ninth season. I mean, I don't know, I don't really want. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, great. So I'm just going to skip ahead because I cannot find where, 
Do you want to be his disciples? Okay, there, yeah, there it is. Do you also want to be his disciples? Yeah. Okay, so this reminded me, this, this moment, this reminded me, it's harder than it looks. This reminds me of, there's this great song, Beauty and the Beast. Disney's Beauty and the Beast. Fantastic, right? And there's this, um, the mob song where they go and kill the beast, kill the beast, right? There's this really great line in that song that says this, we don't like what we don't understand. In fact, it scares us. I'll read that again. We, we don't like what we don't understand. In fact, it scares us. And this monster is mysterious, at least. Bring your guns, bring your knives, save your children, save your wives. We'll save our village and our lives. Kill the beast. Yeah? The Pharisees reviled him, saying, you are his disciple. We're disciples of Moses. We're disciples of the law. We are the keepers of the Sabbath. You follow this wishy-washy Jesus that nobody knows what he does. Yes, he's doing something that no one on the planet has ever done. Yes, he is incorporating this person into life. He is restoring their sight. But we are followers of Moses. We know that God... Now, here's an astonishing thing. This is what the man says. This is an astonishing thing. You don't know where he comes from. And yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but he does listen to one who worships him and obeys him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, you were born entirely in sin and you dare teach us. And they drove him out. Oh man, conviction stings sometimes. And they drove him out. Now, now that he's been driven out, this is when Jesus comes back into the story. Did you notice at the very beginning, this man was shut out. We didn't know who he was. He was blind. Jesus disappears from the story. And we hear, interestingly enough, we hear the story of this man wandering around. How rare is that in scripture? That Jesus is not there. It is this man's story. But when he is driven out is when Jesus shows up again. When people are driven out, that's when Jesus shows up again. Jesus heard that they had driven him out and he had found him. And he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, who is he? Tell me. So that I may believe in him. Jesus said to him, you've seen him. And the one you're speaking with is he. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped Jesus. And Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment so that those who do not see may see. And those who do see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees were in their periphery watching the great British baking show and they, they overheard Jesus say this and they said to themselves, surely we are not blind, are we? Certainly I don't like baking, do I? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would not have sin. How did the story start? This man is blind and they say, he is a sinner. At the end, Jesus says, if you were blind, you would not have sin. But now that you say, we see, your sin remains. Gospel of John wants to turn everything upside down. The Gospel of John wants to take the frame that you have inherited and break it apart, or at least reinvestigate what this frame is, where you got this frame, and how it is directing your sight and where you are going and who you love and how you are. What assumptions do you need to sit with this week? What frame has been given to you? 
What frame are you working with? I'm not judging you for your frame. I'm just asking you to take a look at it. What are the boundaries? To what have you become blind? Friends, you've heard me say it before. Blind spots are not a sin. We all have them. Not correcting for them just might be. To what have you become blind? To whom have you become blind? What do we need to see this week? I'd love for you to think about that this week of what do you need to see? Who do you need to see? Who is missing from your gaze? What kind of boundaries? What kind of frame am I working with? For example, I'll start confession begins with the pastor. This time of year, and I'm going to work on that this week. This time of year, I see my kids' grades before I see them. And they can certainly attest to that. When they come home from school, I've already checked their grades and I ask, so tell me about English. Instead of, what was a blessing to you today? Where did you find joy today? What was difficult for you today? I asked about their failures before seeing them. I need to work on that this week. What is it that you are called to see in your story? I am the light of the world, Jesus said. So let's walk. Let's walk by that light. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen and amen. Let us pray.